Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Daily Dot Differently. Jeremy Kolonofsky here today, and we are studying Tractate Psachim, page 10 Vav, or 15. Really hard material today uh, that is foreign to the modern Jew because it's all about uh, specific issues of ritual purity of food. As we mentioned yesterday, uh, the Mishnah is surprisingly focused on the ritual purity of food. We have a tendency to think that after the temple was destroyed, people stopped thinking about that. It's not true. The rabbis of the Mishnah, who consider themselves the inheritors of the Pharisees, are in fact very focused on, uh, on these issues. And today we are going to explain uh, a very difficult Mishnah, Mishnah that seems to have multiple parts that don't cohere easily. The specific uh, rules related to purity of food, I have to say, have not been relevant in Jewish practice since even before the rabbis lived, since the temple time. So they'll be somewhat alien to modern Jews. Uh, but there's one concept, one halakhic concept on our page that is quite interesting, so I'd like to explain that to you. The Mishnah appeared actually two pages ago. We didn't talk about it then, but I'll say it now. It describes that Rabbi Hanina Skan Hakonim, Rabbi Hanina, who was the like second to the high priest, uh, he reports a tradition that back in Temple times, the Kohanim did not refrain from uh, destroying together a piece of food that had a major degree of impurity, along with that which had a minor degree of impurity, even though. Uh, the minor, the one with the minor degree of impurity would grow more impure thereby. Rabbi Akiva makes a similar point about uh, oil that was impure. And then Rabbi Meir makes a, a much more broad point that says that if you have to destroy two different kinds of, of ritually of, of ritually problematic food, but one of them is not impure, it's just not to be used. In our case, it's chametz on the eve of Passover. You can destroy the pure along with the impure. Rabbi Yossi disagrees with that and brings up the views of Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi Eliezer. So, note the structure of this Mishnah, and here's why it's difficult. The first half involves two sages, Rabbi Hanina, the vice Kohen, and Rabbi Akiva. Then there's Rabbi Meir, who claims that he's making a distinction based on, quote, their words, end quote. And then there is a response to him based on the teachings of two other sages, Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi Eliezer. Now, what's difficult about the text, structurally, is that the first third of the text speaks about two sages, the final third of the text speaks about two other sages, and Rabbi Meir in the middle is supposed to be making a deduction, but it is not clear how his statement relates to, it, it cannot possibly relate to both those in the first clause and those in the final clause. It must relate to one of, you know, either the beginning or the end, but not both. And it is very difficult to figure out uh, uh, how to make this text cohere. And in fact, the Talmud will go on and give two different interpretations. The Gemara, that is to say, the later sages will come along and give two different interpretations. One according to Rabbi Yohanan, uh, who says that Rabbi Meir is deriving from the first third, from Rabbi Hanina. One according to Rabbi Yohanan's brother-in-law, colleague and student, Rachel Lakish, who says, no, 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 the real 
The real deduction comes from the, the two last two sages in the final third of the Mishnah. But either Rabbi Yochanan or Reish Lakish is constrained to, in a rather artificial way, to explain how it connects to the other third. This is why this is really quite a very difficult Gemara. But frankly, for the modern Jew, uh, none of the specific content is that compelling. But in the course of describing the two sages in the final third of the Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, uh, an issue comes up which is, I think, quite interesting. Uh, the context, uh, the context is not interesting, the deduction is interesting. The context that Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua are seen to be arguing about is, you have two barrels of wine. Uh, one wine is what's called truma, dedicated to the priest, and it is ritually pure. Then you have a much larger vat of wine, and it is what's called chulin, non-consecrated food, and it is ritually impure, but that doesn't matter because all the rest of us who are not Kohanim, priests in the temple, can, can drink this wine. But, ah, terrible thing happens. The barrel on the top small bottle of Truma wine breaks, and it is now beginning to drip down into the, uh, into the, to the Hulin wine. What's gonna happen? Well, what's gonna happen is once the Truma wine hits the Hulin wine, it's all prohibited. So let's assign a dollar value. Ten dollars of Truma wine is going to destroy a thousand dollars worth of cooling wine that, that multiple people could enjoy. So what do they do? Well, Rabbi Eliezer, who is often, not, not always, but often a kind of a strict voice on purity questions, says, listen, you should try to save the true ma wine, the ritually pure true ma wine, if you can. Uh, but if you cannot, that is to say, if you don't have any sort of ritually pure vessel, and if you use a ritually impure vessel, you would... Uh, contaminate, ritually contaminate that first wine. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to ritually contaminate truma and tough nuggies to the owner of the thousand dollars worth of cooling wine. You have to, you have to give it up. Rabbi Yehoshua says, on the other hand, uh, that it's a terrible thing to have all this waste. So in this case, when the, when the wine is barrel broken anyway, it's all just going to go, go to the floor anyway. You can capture the Shuma wine with an impure vessel so that you can save a thousand dollars worth of cooling wine. So, Rabbi Yehoshua invokes, or rather the Talmud invokes on his behalf, a principle called Hefsed Merubeh, a great loss. Um, that is to say, uh, in the phrase of the sages, HaTorah Chasa Al-Mamonam Shal Yisrael, the Torah is worried about, concerned about, maintaining the property of the Jewish people. So, uh, it's loath to say, you're going to let $10 worth of truma wine uh, uh, destroy $1,000 worth of cooling wine. It's such a great loss that we, in fact, would permit, we, speaking in the Talmud, we have to, we the sages would permit somebody to do something that would be ordinarily forbidden to ritually contaminate truma food for the sake of protecting the poor loss of the, uh, of the owner of that wine. Uh, to uh, to be concerned about one's fellow's property is a great ethical is a great ethical height, and uh, Rabbi Yehoshua uh, offers that view today on our page, and in fact the law follows him. So if you are holding two barrels of of uh, wine, one of which is consecrated for the priest, you can prevent it from going into the chulin, even though uh, even though it's uh, uh, going to, even with a ritually impure vessel. Now, Hefsed Merubeh doesn't cover everything. You can't just say that, therefore, 
the cheapest or most economical alternative is the halakhically preferable one. Uh, you know, that would be an absurdity. But there are certain cases when the, the status of the prohibition is not that high or the facts of the case are somewhat in doubt when the hefset mirubeh is important. If you have two possible options, then the economic uh, consequence of the choice is a relevant halakhic factor. All right, thanks for learning today's page with me, and I look forward to learning with you again tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.